This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Michael D. Fay. Mike has been on the show before, so if that name sounds familiar, and I hope it does, uh, that might be one of the reasons you know it. Um, Mike is also maybe the most prominent well-respected, most often has his name dropped, Marine combat artist that I know of. Um, anyway, I, I say that because so many Marine combat artists have said, oh, do you know Mike Faye's work? Um, and I that's how I got to meet Mike. Um, we talked about hey, six months ago. Uh, Mike's Wi-Fi isn't great where he is in Pennsylvania. So I drove down to him. Um, we had a great talk. We could have done 10 hours. So I was like, hey, I'll come back and do part two. And we've scheduled it every single month since, and I've never been able to make it back. It's hard for me to take a day to drive down to Pennsylvania. It worked out great because, sorry, I got some, it's early in the morning still. So bear with me. My voice is a little um, groggy. So it worked out great when we, Mike and I got to see each other. Uh, because Mike was literally in the finishing stages of doing all the wall hangings and setting them all up for his latest exhibit of the Joe Bonham project. So the Joe Bonham project has been a passion project of Mike's for about 10, 15 years now. <clears throat> Joe Bonham is a fictional character. He was the, the protagonist of Dalton Trumbo's Johnny got his gun, which was written in 1939. Um, not a Dalton Trumbo was an incredible writer. Um, he was blacklisted. He was a communist sympathizer. Um, he was also a wildly talented writer. Um, I don't think Johnny Goddess Gun was a particularly good book. I'm not a communist sympathizer, and I don't really go for a lot of the anti-war stuff. So I had some political reservations about that. But the Joe Bonham project that Mike has spearheaded is an incredible project where Mike had assembled really a Hall of Fame roster of combat artists and went out and started capturing renderings of wounded warriors in the VA, 
Walter Reed, whatever. Um, and the, the, the two going down to see Mike in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where the exhibit is at the Carlisle historical society, by the way, the exhibits there till December 13th, go see it. Carlisle's a beautiful town. I had never been there. Obviously it's the home of the army war college, uh, Dickinson college as well. And anyway, a lot of art, a lot of patriotism, a lot of history. Um, what a beautiful site and what a beautiful display. Uh, that Mike puts on. And when I walked into the, to the little gallery where he's showing, I had two thoughts. First is the work was incredible. Um, there was, you know, a, um, a diversity of art, like a, a diversity of lenses from all these different artists that captures so many different aspects of each of the wounded warriors, their faces, the expressions. Yes. Obviously the injuries, um, which, you know, is a major part of the the component. Um, The notes that the artist took, the captioning that they did, some of them, Uh, it was just incredible uh, spread, incredible layout of work. Um, that was my first thought. The second thought was, holy shit, do I not like this subject matter? Um, not a big fan of just seeing drawing after drawing of wounded warriors. The technique, incredible. The artwork, incredible. Um, it's a tough thing to see. And you'll hear Mike and I talk about that and talk about who is this exhibit intended for and why. I will say, <clears throat> because it's Mike that's doing it, that did uh, that you know this is his project that he's put together and because of the people that he assembled the nice thing the nice uh, the I, I was grateful that one of my immediate concerns was alleviated which is that it's certainly not exploitive these are guys that eat sleep and shit the military they have a deep love for the wounded warriors <clears throat> and you and you hear and see both from the written captioning and in talking to Mike and in just the nature of the drawings themselves, these guys opened up to the artists. I think Mike even says in the interview, you know, a lot of times I think the combat artists basically become almost like chaplains. Um, so that is not an issue. Um, you know, the explo- any, any concerns about exploitiveness, exploitation, that's a better word, um, would be unfounded, which is always good. But, um, but it is a tough subject matter. And so we talk about all the whys and wherefores with this project. Um, but again, if you are in and around Carlisle, Pennsylvania, before December 13th, go over to the Historical Society and check it out. It, it is incredible. Mike's done an incredible job. He has all this stuff in storage, and then he breaks it out to take it out and exhibit it. Um, Joe Bonham project aside, anytime you can sit down with Mike Fay. It's worth your time to do that. His love for his fellow Marines, the military, and art and ideas is epically deep. Um, it's fascinating to sit down and just let him talk. Uh, he, as you'll hear, he's got a million ideas um, and he executes them uh, haphazardly in a kind of delightful, gleeful chaos. And it is, um, it's a pleasure to watch him in his element. Uh, I could, every time we've gotten to talk, it's been a blast and I look forward to the next time we can do it. 
Uh, he's truly one, uh, one, it's one of the delights to be able to sit and talk with him. It was even more of a delight to be able to sit in that room and actually be able to take the mics and walk over to different paintings. I think we're going to try to put the paint, some of the paintings that we were talking about in the show notes. So you can kind of see what it is we're referring to because it's various points. We do talk about some of the paintings and some of the technique and <clears throat> some of the method to the madness um, in some of the work that Mike has done there. Okay. I don't think I have anything else to say on this for now. I'm just glad that we finally got back to talking with Mike Fay. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Mike Fay's second profile in Havoc. All right. Take two, Mike. All right, Chris, um, you know, let's just start, let's start, let's start from the beginning. I'm a Marine Warrant Officer, and you better treat me with respect or I will kill you. All right, we got that, we got are, that. Are you pleading with me with tears I, in your eyes? I, no, I'm just, I'm just telling you, just, uh, you know, I'm going to pick up on some stuff if you don't and be thinking bad thoughts. So, you know, you just, you know, I'm just putting it out. Hey, I have been polite, I have been professional, and I have a plan to kill everyone I meet. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm going to let you live. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's great to see you, man. It's great to see you. Yeah. Um, first of all, I got to ask the kilt. Is this is this normal? I didn't see the kilt last time. I didn't talk about that. No. I, I, if you I, did, I forgot. I'm an avid kilt wearer. Really? Yes. It's a whole for story any is, is, is there an occasion for it, or is it any time? Is it Tuesday Anytime. and I can wear a kilt? I have I have more. As my wife says, Michael has more skirts than she has. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me why. Why? Why is that? Um. God, I actually, I, 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 when I exhibited this Joe Bonham project, uh, body of artwork at the um, uh, National Veterans Art Museum in Chicago, or kilt out there. So they actually interviewed me. The guy, the one the head curious says, "I want to. What's this all about?" So I gave him a long answer. But um, th- when people ask me, yeah, and so part of it is because people ask me. So I have a lot of friends who wear kilts. We have a Facebook group, Facebook group called uh, Kilts and Culture. It has over 21,000 members. I believe it. And it, so people that wear kilts tend to be very extroverted. Yes. And so it is an immediate conversation getter. So if I'm out in public, I know people are going to people who would never ever engage somebody. So in a manner of speaking, and I said this out in um, uh, in Chicago to the guy is it's a manner of, it's a it's 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 a, a a type of performance art it's marketing almost too right well it because might be people that. then get start to get to know you why are you right, here it, why is, are you it is almost like performance art okay because um the kilt is for whether you like it or not is is the original warrior dress it is it is you know you got the spore true. on and people sit here and i am manspread all right so <laughs> it is it is it is it yeah. is warrior clothing yeah um it is a connection to the past. It is a nod to uh, tradition, to a lot of things that uh, are normally passe in t- today's world. So it's, culturally, it is a bit of performance art because mm. you are engaging people. Yep. It participates. People will start participating with you, and they're curious. Um, when did that start? When did you start wearing the kilt? Well, I, I started wearing a kilt in 2013, in September. And I was, uh, my mom and my brothers all still live in and around Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. Right. And uh, I was visiting my mom. 
I'm the oldest of three boys. My middle brother, Doug, um, had purchased uh, some inexpensive kilts for himself and his three sons for one occasion and one occasion only, the annual St. Patrick's Day parade in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And he had always tried to get me to wear a kilt. He says, get a kilt. Come on, come on. I'm like, ah, no, 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 no. So I was up there visiting, and it happened to be the weekend of um, it, it's uh, uh, the big Celtic festival in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, of all places. Huh. Um, it's, called the, it's called the Celtic Classic. And it's, uh, it's quite a big Celtic festival of all places, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was founded by Moravian, German Moravians. Uh, but um, they have uh, international Celtic games that are broadcast all oh, over the world. Really? You know, wow. Throwing telephone poles, yeah, yeah, rocks, yeah. bales of hay. Yeah. You know, very manly stuff. Sure. And he says, hey, it's the, and it's usually like the third weekend in September. Um, and he said, hey, let's go over to the Celtic Festival. He goes, why don't you wear a kilt? I was like, all right. Because his one son, Anthony, and I have sort of the same build. He says, wear Anthony's kilt and his sporin. And, and, and I said, all right, I'll do it. Well, that was it. And, and one of the things we talk about um, on uh, with this Facebook group, uh -huh. Kilts and Culture, is um, it's an interesting visceral experience for a man to wear a kilt. It really, it, it, it keys into something that you didn't know was there. And a lot of people, they wear the first kilt and it's an entry-level drug we talk uh. about. It will not be your last kilt. And, you know, kilts are worn uh, fully regimental, which means that you are finally in correct alignment with gravity. Okay? And the ladies right. know this. And so one of the interesting phenomena is, even I had it today happen in a restaurant, is women will say to you, are you wearing that correctly? Didn't she just enter? Didn't didn't somebody just enter and ask you that? Yeah. It's that going to go too, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. if my wife's there, she'll go, "Yes, he is." <laughs> and people say, "Do you ever wear the kilt when it's really cold?" I said, "Oh yeah." I said, "The only way that I know it's too cold is if I have two lumps in my throat. <laughs> then it's too cold." Um, and I have gone hiking in snowstorms because I was very interested, knowing that there were British regiments in the First World War who were in the trenches in kilts. I said, well, what is that all about? And um, I've gone hiking in the snow, and I'm here to tell you it's, it's all good. So it's psychological though, right? It's just, it's just what, what's primal about it? What, ta what, what primal thing is it tapping into to wear a kilt? That's a good question. I, I, I just know that it does. Huh. And we do talk about it. It's not, it's a fashion thing, uh -huh. but it's more than that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like, it's timing. It's, it's, it's getting into something very timeless and eternal. And you got, and you have badges, accoutrements on it that you can yes, put, you put, right? Like I have, uh, I have my air crew wings and the symbol here, this Celtic symbol is, and I can never pronounce it correctly, is Loki's wolf buddy from Fenir. Oh, okay. Which is, Whoa. Uh, which actually killed Odin. Okay. Really? I don't know my Norse mythology. So this is the original devil right. dog. Oh, got you. This is the original devil dog. Okay. Um, Boy, if somebody knows that off your kilt, they really are a, a nerd. That's true. Holy they really. Um, so, right. um, 
And this particular tartan I'm wearing today, this is a tweed. Uh-huh. Uh, it's wool, but it's tweed. Okay. I couldn't tell you why it's tweed. <laughs> um, it's obviously rougher. So uh-huh. I like it. It's a very rough. It's a very... Uh, I know. Is it comfortable? Is it oh, itchy? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's not itchy. No. Oh, no, no. It's, okay. not, it's, not the, it's not the wool suit your mom made you wear at Easter. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, okay. They're very comfortable. Interesting. Very comfortable. I feel like there's there's probably a lot of veterans on that Facebook page. Oh, yeah. Number one is Marines. Really? Yeah, I yeah. believe it. Number one, you'll see, you know, it's, and, and, uh, and we got Jenny sitting over here, but one of the things that ladies will tell you is that a woman see a man in a kilt, they go, that is a man who is confident. Jenny did whisper that as she walked in. She's like, that's a man who is confident. Yeah. Did you, did you say that? <laughs> no, it is. And it's, and so it's a primal thing because yeah. we can talk about here in the modern post uh, modern era whatever you know as an artist my particular type of art is there are things that are primal yeah. we can try to do thism and thism and all kinds of isms there is just stuff that as you know we're talking with with uh, Brian that we're yeah. losing contact with at a at a conscious level but it's still there yeah and so you know, uh, you know, my wife's retired E seven in the army. You've met her, yeah, yeah. You know, but there is still something in all of us, and I'm going to sound. I'm, this is not misogynistic, that women respond to a manly man. Yeah, and I tell you, I, we've gone out together, and I'll tell you, there are certain groups that love a man in a kilt besides regular cisgender women, <laughs> lesbians love a man. In a kilt. They're like almost like you might be able to turn him gay black man. We go to New York City and well-dressed gay black men, like we walk through like Macy's or something, they'll come running over from five aisles away. My wife laughs. He goes, here comes one. Come over going, oh my God, man, that is, you have got it. That's complete. You are working. I love that. Look, where did you get it? Black women. Go to the mall, especially at Christmas time, a group of friends. Oh, they got to have pictures with you. So- you know, to explain that phenomena, because yeah. it is a phenomena yeah. that is beyond fashion. And so, can, but the other I, joke, I'll just say, yeah, the other thing yeah. I say to people is like, listen, I did nine combat tours. I am not fucking dropping dead in anything with a cargo pocket. You know, it's just that simple. <laughs> and I'm tired of wearing clothes made in China. Well, there's some of that too. There's some of it. Are these tartans actually made where? In Scotland, Ireland, where are they All made? The fabrics are made either in, in Wales or Scotland. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. That's where they're made. Interesting. The thing, so you brought up, it it does take an extroverted person or at least somebody that's willing to flip the switch and be very extroverted when they wear it. Have you ever worn a kilt just in private? Have you painted or drawn in a kilt? I don't want to get anything on them. Okay. I'm a mess. Yeah. yeah. My sketches. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I use graphite pencils. Because they're easy to erase, but I don't end. If I used like charcoal, I would just be black all the way up to my earlobes. Really? Really? I'm a mess. Why? What's the process like for you? I'm just a mess. I get into a whole other state of mind. There are are artists, like when you look at this show here, the Joe Bonham Project. Yeah. In particular, I'm going to say Victor and and Richard. Richard draws with ballpoint pen, no erasing. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's ballpoint pen. That's well. He's really? got these other are Prismacolor. These are grease pencils. Jesus. Yeah. There's no eraser. Yeah. Victor, he draws with grease pencils. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. 
And I've, I've sat there while they do it, and they're just like, it's as smooth and as they don't even think about it. Me, I'm grunting, grinding my teeth, getting ready to give it all up and become a postman. <laughs> I just want to be a postman. I want to go. I want to walk. I want to go home. I don't want to think about it. So, I think every writer can relate to well, that. I, and so yeah. I understand yeah. why artists become alcoholics and drug addicts. Because I get very keyed up. I get very, very, it's not, it is only pleasant to the end, at the end. And I say the reason is, is because as an artist, I love art. Until a drawing or painting is done, I'm looking at bad art yeah. that I'm personally responsible for. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that uh, I think that as a child, and I'm talking four, five, six years old, I knew what good art was. So in other words, I had perfect pitch when it came to art. So I would look in an art book and looking back at, at that age, I knew what good art was and I knew that portraits of Elvis on velvet were terrible. I knew that hotel motel art was terrible. I just, there was like, no, 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 no. That's, I don't know what that is. But as far as like, you know, uh, to look at a, a, a Monet or a Gustav right. Klimt, or a, or, a, or a Howard Pyle, you know, or yeah. N.C. Wyeth. Or, I mean, they knew yeah. that this is the good stuff. What influenced you most? Would you still see traces of their influence in your work? Oh, yeah. Is it conscious or is it unconscious at this point? No, I think it's, it's more conscious. I mean, I, my style, There's I'm, some a, Wyeth, I'm a realist, right? but... A lot of times people go, you're, you, 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 stuff is not always, like you look at Victor's, you know it's Victor's. You look at mm -hmm. Richard's, you know it's Richard's, okay? Me, on the other hand, I might start doing something and it'll start to resonate. I go, oh, I think that's starting. So I'm kind of like, I'm not, I'm not an originalist, my style. It's like I, like who would I think of that it would, I mean, like, but you're not a derivative either. You're completely an original. I yeah, mean, I mean, I'm an original, but in terms of, I think I'm much more influenced. Um, like I have a, 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 a it, it was a painting that was in my office when you were down the last time. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also, there was a preliminary drawing for that. Okay. It's called Guardian Angel. That original drawing with, with the outsized proportions um, goes all the way back to a piece by Harvey Dunn of an American machine gunner with a with a, a forty five caliber pistol from World War One, this monumental figure with exaggerated uh, proportions. Yeah. So when I was doing it, I was very conscious of that. Okay, this has got a kind of a Harvey Dunn World War thing going on. Were you aware of that from the start of the piece, or did pretty it start much to when dawn it, once on it started, you? I was like, okay, what am I well, going for here? So in other words, I would be like a jazz musician yeah. who my particular jazz is that I will start playing something and go, oh, I think this is like getting kind of a Miles Davis thing. Or maybe it's uh, Andreas Volenvieter. And, I, and I, will, I will go down that path. And that's why you get dirty. Because you're not mapping it out ahead of time. Yeah, right? no, I'm not. I have no plan. It's, it's, you're creating on the, on yeah, the go. You know, I, I mean, I, that's why it's like, I need the eraser. So how does I mean, I'm really pushing whatever it is. It's paint, pencil. I am just pushing it all over the paper. To the point sometimes that I've erased through the paper. So there's a certain wow. Wow. there's a certain manic keyed up aspect right. that some of my other friends don't have. 
And it's always been that way for me. I mean, there have been times I said, why am I doing art? I, I mean, my first wife would go, you're in there grinding your teeth and making weird sounds. Yeah, yeah. Know? And uh, Is it know. stressful? Oh, yeah. Oh, until you get to a very, uh, the reason what keeps me going is it's, uh, until you get to the very end, you go, okay, we got it, we got it. We, wow. Know, I'm not going to die. <laughs> I found the ripcord in, in, my, in my, uh, you know, my extra shoot. Or uh, it's like, you know, uh, courting a, a beautiful woman. It's like, oh, this isn't happening. It's not going to happen. All of a sudden, she's like going, okay, let's go back to my apartment. It's like, what? It's like, wow, okay. Okay. I didn't realize this is working out. You know, I just had like, you know, five days of stress. Like, you know, hey, oh, she's not interested. Or I just said a stupid thing. And then next thing you know, she's going, all right, let's go back to my place. What? Is it still like that for you, though? Really? It's has oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Like just doing that thing of Joe Bonham, that sculpture. Yeah. yeah. You know, the basis to that was a uh, Lowe's uh, uh, skeleton that people, plastic skeleton, yeah, they hang in a tree. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's my armature underneath there. Wow. You know, but wow. it's still, you know. Is there any preparation that you go into or do you literally just start with blank and then just create from there? Well, I... I I think the one thing that I, I'm good at is is design. In other words, I can sort of envision ahead of time like where generally I want the focus and the flow to be. Didn't you take these from pictures or were these live? Some are live and some are from photographs. It just, so the photograph kind of gives you the outline of where right, you're going to go, right? At, I'm very good at framing things. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'd be a very good photographer. I'm not a photographer, but I've taken some great photos. Sure. Uh, I, I'm not a photographer in the sense that I really don't know how back in the day of developing pictures, I have no idea. Right, right. And then all that stuff with, you know, lens, focal distance. Yeah, stop, yeah, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I mean, I could probably learn it, but um, essentially um, I'm glad there's digital cameras where you get the, it's much more forgiving yeah. than old, uh, you know, because my first two trips as a combat artist in Marine Corps, I didn't have a digital camera. I had You're just sketching. I had sketches and I had a regular camera. Was it like film. a disposable or was it actually film? Film. film. So I had all these okay. little canisters of film that I had to label yeah. and keep logs and gig, 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 gig. Oh, jeez. But doesn't that, get, doesn't that alleviate some stress that you're like, hey, look, I got the picture. The inspiration will always be there every time I look back. Does that alleviate any stress or no? No, you know, because the reason I would rely on photography was situational. In other words, if I'm like back to being a combat artist. Right. right. As a combat artist with the history division, no unit in the field was obligated right. to engage me. Right. You know, I could show up and they would say the typical thing. Why are you here eating my chow and filling up my shitters? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they had to know that you were that there was a value added aspect to you being there which essentially would be like, okay, okay, you want to go out and, and I'm showing up. I'm a guy in his, you know, late forties, early fifties. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, people in their early fifties are like generals or, you know, yeah. most of the enlisted guys are like, I'm going to plan on being retired by the time I'm 44. Okay. <laughs> and you're like 51. Yeah. So you show up. So you sort of say, okay, you can go out. And if you're in a Humvee, because uh, a lot of patrols would go out in Humvees. Yeah, sure. You know, Humvee holds five people front. You know, they got the you got the A driver, you got the driver, you got the two people in the back, and a guy in a turret. Yeah. So if you're in the vehicle, somebody else isn't in the vehicle. Yeah. 
which means that, you know, if we get in the shit, you know, how are you going to be? Because we don't have time to, no, we're totally, not here to babysit 100%. You. Yeah. And this is your, you know, this is the guy sitting next to you is your battle buddy. So we have yeah. to start bounding forward. You need to know, show that you're doing. Yeah. The, the camera was a means to an end. Um, you know, because a lot of things that are fleeting, you know, that I have in my art, you would never have time to sketch. A hundred percent. Now, I will say Victor and Richard have done TED Talks, and they are very good at starting a sketch and anticipating, like, okay, what's going to happen next? So they can do that composite, composite. Right, and they have to because they're not. Yeah, they're, they're really good at it. I mean, yeah, Victor yeah. was a, was a court, courtroom artist. You know, Victor's first gig for the New York Times was the arraignment for the son of Sam. Huh. And he was still in college. He was already illustrating the New York Times and he gets a phone call. Can you get down to like district court, blah, 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 and, and cover this? Because we, you know, wow. we need somebody down there now. And, uh, that, that's got to be like, be, I feel like the parallel is like a reporter for the paper who then becomes a novelist. It's like, it's great training because sure. you got to write so often on deadline. Yeah. You got to draw so often on deadline. It just gets you that, right? And that's got to be great sure. training, I would sure. imagine. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, so to back to your question, um, you know, if I was, uh, my passion is not photography. And I, if I think about it, if I was a photographer, that's what I did for the Marine Corps, it would be a lot less stressful. Yeah. Because I knew guys. Yeah. And, and technically, the Marine Corps, and trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do with this guy? How are we going to keep him? And uh, so we'll make him a warrant officer. Okay, but what kind of warrant officer? <laughs> well, we'll make him a combat camera officer. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I couldn't. I was not. I could not have run a combat camera shop. You know, if, the, if I went somewhere and they said, oh, the combat camera officer just got killed. You're in charge. I'd be like, I have no idea. <laughs> Staff Sergeant, you're in charge completely. Um <laughs> But with you know the digital age, these combat camera guys they just start clicking away. Yeah, sure. So sure, I have a good eye, and you you'll find those you know if you shoot a thousand p- images, you're going to find twenty or thirty that are totally. kick ass. Totally. You know, just as long as you know, oh, do a little asymmetrical. You know, tilt the camera a little bit. You know, wait for the light. Lay down on the floor. Shoot up. You know, just all those basic. You know, and, and right. framing. Just you know, adjustments. High horizon, low horizon. You know the law of, of, of threes. In other words, you 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 you, you know have it off one third this way and over this third. Don't really center. You know, just oh, got you. Yeah, just yeah. all just just your essential design stuff. You know, my as an artist, which uh, I think shows up in the artwork, the stress is uh, is that uh, critics and people who have seen my art um, talk about the uh, the psychological depth which is an odd thing to say because I don't really try to do that, but it shows up. So I think my struggles with the medium is, is that. And even Victor and, and, and Richard would say, you know, the, the depth that you get is, we're, you know, it, it's different than what ours is. How much of the photographs mirror your final product that's drawn or painted or whatever. Maybe a little bit, but I, I edit out a lot of crap. I was going to say, because yeah, like I mean, a lot of gear stuff, like all the wires and right, 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 right. And does that happen by instinct or does that happen by design? Generally, do you generally go I'm conscious of that? It's like, okay. it, yeah. I, when I teach art, what I tell kids is like, listen, 
if you're confident in what you do, you know, in, in the final product, uh, the viewer will believe whatever you tell them. Don't question yourself like, oh, that's not what it looks like. They don't know that. Yeah. They don't yeah, know what yeah, you of course. added or left out. Of course. If it's done with confidence and directness, they will trust whatever you've told them. In other words, it's like people will look at an impressionist painting, and clearly the world does not look like an impressionist painting, but people utterly trust it and in some cases find it more beautiful than actual reality. What about the medium? Do you do you go in knowing this has got to be charcoal, or do you decide that on the fly? No, I, I don't touch charcoal. I mean, I use graphite. I mean, graphite, sorry. Yeah, yeah graphite's yeah. a little different. Um, you know, I know what I might do is, like, for instance, I might say to myself, and, and I can show you, like, some portrait I did of, uh, two portraits I did of uh, Kyle Carpenter, is I did the drawing on watercolor paper, which has got more tooth. So you... You automatically are going to have uh, the, the 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 roughness or the the what we call the tooth of the watercolor paper show through. So you get you get an added expression. Can we take a look at that? Sure. Let's walk over. Yeah, I want to say I want to take a look. That's wild. I, I've never heard that expression. I'm going to steal that expression. Oh, sorry. Here we go. That expression uh, that it has tooth. I, I feel like. That'd be a good one to use in any other uh, other context. Hard to see. Uh, Is it tough to see from there? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's just, it's just you see the, the green of the paper. Oh God! Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. No, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whereas, you, like here, Rob Bates, these people, you know, it's very smooth paper. Yeah. Very smooth. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, um, well, here, this is watercolor. So you get that green. Of course. See, here. So I did this from a, a pad of watercolor paper. So you get this rough. Did you know that when you when you oh, took yeah. the picture initially? Or did you? Or did, oh, not when I concept? took the picture. I didn't know what I was going to. But you knew it had to be on that paper. Yeah, because it was such a raw, you know, probably looking back, it was such a, you know, you can see here. See the, yeah. the pattern of the paper? Yeah, of course. Um, so I did. Wow. Um, I'm a different. Yeah, this was a. Some of these when I did, I did these on site. So you can see here. I must have two sketchbooks. Yeah, because this this one here, you can see these here. This one, this one, this one. I did uh, on site. This is photograph, photograph, photograph. So you can see. I, I just. I guess I decided I was going to use the paper that's got the. You can see the puckering, the, the tooth. Of course. So when you say you did some of these on site, so like here, Lance Corporal Tyler Hoffman with his physical therapist working on getting over, what is that? Over curbs? Yeah, over curbs. So we were outside. Uh, okay. We were oh, sort of like curbs walking, on the street. Oh, God. In his hair, he was practicing inside. And getting up. He crawled out of his wheelchair. Yeah. How can he get back in? Got you. Um, so while he's doing that and he's practicing, you're basically coming up with ideas that are an amalgamation of all right, the different things. Right, and then I went back in and just sort of, you know, I didn't, I, I, I didn't have time to sketch all the women. So yeah. it's just like, and the main thing was their hands. And this here, like here, I had him uh, sign it, and he was, you know, I was sketching them, and he was, I was saying, you know, what, what happened to you? You know, it's like, and, he, and this is one of the situations we talk, I've talked about. Is like you're, 
the family has never asked him like, what happened? Do you remember anything? Yeah. So I'm, and I'm just like going, Hey, you know what happened? And he, he starts telling me and the I look over and the mother's like, wow. The wife's like, what? Holy <laughs> he never shit. told us that. Well, you never asked him because they thought, Oh, Jesus. he doesn't want to talk about it. You know? So, um, <laughs> one the of the things thing. I say is, is, uh, you know, you talk about value added, uh, both in doing the artwork of the uh, wounded warriors um, but when I was out in the field, and, and Richard has had that experience too, is that, you know, here you are an artist in, in a very, what most people consider a very tense, troubling yeah. environment. Yeah. And here's an artist sketching you. It adds an element that commanders recognize. They, they're looking at their troops going, huh, they seem absorbed in this. So this, this is, cannot be a bad thing. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. they, and being an older guy, it's like, you know, it's like, you're like a chaplain. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, people open up in ways they wouldn't otherwise. Well, I think too. in our last interview I talked about because, you know, the word to draw. So I always say, you know, when, when, you, when you're drawing people, they are drawn to you and you're drawing them out. You know, and so it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a, um, and, and I told all these other artists, I said, when you go in there and we start sketching these people, don't be afraid to be very, ask them, like, what's going on? What happened? Because they, they've signed the HIPAA form and they've elected to be sketched. Uh, you know, and they're as raw and open and vulnerable as you're ever going to find anybody. So ask away. Like here are this, this uh, Sergeant Adams here, David Adams. Like this guy was here. This was the most, and this was from a photograph. I had. Oh, I, was. I, I have other sketches I did of him. Yeah. Sitting with him. So I'm sketching him. And of course, um, he, he was just. He was, he was just, did not look well. Well, you said bloodshot eyes from being up most of the night sobbing. Yeah, yeah. Right? So he, yeah. his story was, he, uh, I suppose sobbing. No, you did. You did. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so he, he actually had been screwed up and then went back into combat and then whatever they had fixed got worse. Um, and then he had, he just had brain damage and he had medication he was not very good at taking. And he had another wound that just wouldn't heal. It had to do with his medication. Just it was just a, he was just a mess. But he was very open. He was very open. He was yeah. like he knew he was. He's like oh god. And so um, you know his eyes were so bloodshot. And uh, uh, I thought he had that uh, you know that infection all our kids get. Uh, what's it called? Uh, oh RSV or uh, um, infected eyes. Oh, like a red, a pink eye, like that. Yeah, it's like pink eye. It's not, but at any rate, so I said, "Yeah, you know, pink eye." He goes, "No." He says, "I was up all night sobbing. No idea why he was up all night because his brain you know, brain injury." But he said, "I can't sleep," and I was up all night sobbing. And he was very. He's like, oh. "So I'm getting ready to leave." He goes, "Hey, you want to see my uh, uh, my X-ray?" Well, I said, "Yeah, that'd be cool." So that was like just like at the last. I'm, I'm going out the door. And he gets his x-ray. And I, and I had him pose. I said, hold it like this, you know. And once again, you know, the rule of thirds, you know, it's like he's not right here. He's kind of over, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you hold up after? Do you have to take a minute after? Do you have to get a beer after? Like, how do you do it? Yeah, if you don't want me to drink a beer. <laughs> oh, that's right. My bad. I totally forgot. Yeah. It's yeah, been a while since yeah. we did episode one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, the world's a safer place, <laughs> a much safer place. One last drunken Irish <laughs> No, not really. No. Okay. You process it pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have uh, uh, diagnosed with chronic PTSD, and I, I think there's various types of PTSD. In fact, when I, we were talking with Jenny about the brain, is that um, 
you know, we have a sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And the best example is if you hold your breath, which you can voluntarily do, that's your sympathetic nervous system. And then you'll pass out and your parasympathetic nervous system will take over and you'll start breathing again. Um, I think if you're in combat, whether direct combat, waiting to go into combat, or whatever, um, you know, your, your nervous system responds to that with, with various drugs, adrenaline, and then uh, adrenaline being sort of short-term, you know, grandma picking the car off a grandson. Yeah. Um, the long-term is cortisol. Right. And so I think that uh, sometimes I call uh, PTSD combat addiction syndrome because these are all focusing chemicals. And so if you're in combat or out, out, in, in, out in what I used to call the goo, for long periods of time, you know, sort of get addicted to this sort of simple, very focused life. Yeah. The problem is we're still Neanderthals part of our brain and so you come back and part of you goes never goes back to what they call stasis you never go back to equilibrium so i think a part of what for some of us ptsd is um not going back to equilibrium so you're always kind of like right hyper vigilant right your body's kicking out cortisol um you know and i've been on all the you know the, the, the laundry list you know serotonin reuptake inhibitors and all that crap and um right now i'm not i'm not taking anything well um good for you and uh i just turned 70 so i think your body getting older yeah not quite as hyper as you once were but uh you know that issue comes up with art you know people say well yeah because you can process this you know perhaps you know because art therapy aspect of it i go i don't know i still grind my teeth at night and yeah have to find a cell phone tone that doesn't make me jump out of my skin. Oh, right. Every once in a while, if I'm stressed, I get alopecia nervosa, and I get little nickel-sized things of hair falling out. <laughs> One time I had that really bad, and I went to the Navy corpsman, and they said, oh, you got ringworm. I go, I don't have ringworm. <laughs> they go, no, no, yeah, you do. Here's, yeah. here's, you know, it's like, no, it's, a, it's alopecia nervosa. It's a, yeah, I you mean. Know, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's just an immune system response to high levels of stress hormones in your blood. But what, when you're around these guys, does it does it feel natural and kind of at home, or does it? Oh, does absolutely, it, does absolutely. It, and, yeah. Does it poke you though emotionally? Do you make? Do you go? God damn, that jacked me up a little. That put me back in a place for a second. I, you know, that's a good question. I don't. I, I I probably have to say. Um. And perhaps that's you know the 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 aspect in particular of PTSD is disassociation that you right, sort of right the professional part of you takes over. And you just, you know, like like here we're standing in front of p- images of Derek McConnell. You know, this guy, I mean, he yeah. was so, because these are yeah. welts from septic infections. Because a lot of these guys, mm-hmm. the technology was sufficient that they could, you know, take care of, you know, a- amputations and stuff. But they, uh, you know, especially in Afghanistan, a lot of these guys were wounded in yeah. Afghanistan, yeah. was the, the dirt yeah, got into the wounds. And they had just... Uh, you know, these incredibly terrible, difficult uh, infection situations, you know, it was the other stuff was taken care of, but the, the stuff and you just sort of, yeah. um, I don't know. I mean, one of the things with this Joe Bonham project in particular is uh, most people is uh, the sort of humanity that's very present in the subjects because it, and it was sort of a participation because we were in there saying, hey, we're here to do art to you guys because your experience is important. And so they would engage with us, you know, and, and one of the, almost everybody, uh, you might 
when you read some of the yeah. artist statements said, you know, it was very surprising how forthcoming they were. And Victor in particular, because he was one of the first ones with me, he says, you know, Mike is there just basically asking obvious questions and they're just like, hey, yeah, you know, you know, two holes in, one hole out, bounced yeah. off my, you know, this. Yeah. and the family's like, what? You know, and I was like laying on the ground and I'm taking my shit off. And so when the corpsman gets over to me, he's got less to do, you know, in that, in that wild yeah. adrenaline. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And so you're just, you're just having it's a, you know, I guess the word has come to my mind all of a sudden, Chris, is conversation. A lot of these artwork, this is, these yeah, are conversations, yeah. visual conversations that we had with these young men. Let, let's talk about why that is. Why is it? Why is this important? What, what was the What was the motive behind the project, and what do you hope to achieve with it? Well, the motive is, I mean, being a, a child of the '60s and growing up with the Vietnam War, um, I, I, you know, I knew the public was going to forget. You know, I, I knew, and it has happened. Of course, um, and so. Um, well, actually, let me let me drill into that for a second, because it's interesting. I guess the glib answer, the glib question is, what would they forget? Because like it's the wounds that we're showing here, right? And all these deep physiological conditions that are jarring to look at. No. Do you think they forget that, or do you think they forget, like you talked about when we first walked in? I'm a marine. I love war. Do you think they forget the reasons why you go to war? Because I'm wondering how much, like, there's there's so many different aspects of it. Do you think they forget all of it, or do you think they forget certain parts of it? Well, I mean, the disconnect is profound. Yeah, you know, you know, the 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 joke for a lot of Marines would be like, you know, I came home from war, and all my buddies are like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, like, you know, did you get to kill people? It's just like World of Warcraft. So, yeah, you know, modern yeah. culture, we're so we're we're so prophylactically. <laughs> insulated and manipulated i mean there's just it, it's it's very complex and so myself as an artist uh, you know what little can i do mm. you know what little can i do did you ever consider doing stuff besides just the physical wounds of war or was that was was did you what did you think was important about showing physically what's happened to some of these guys well, it, it's the war is written in their skin. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's written in their, you know, into their skin, into their lack of body parts, into how their eyes, their directness of their gazes. You know, this is war written large. Yeah. You know, um, which was the whole Joe Bonham story because it's like, uh, no, I don't know if we want this to be out there. And so this group of gentlemen that have this show who are military officers, very well-educated guys are professors of the war college. You know, these are discussions that they've had, you know, over beer and cigars or whatever, Yeah. you know, as thinking, caring men, um, that, you know, uh, you know, that, that this, this, it's not just so much the sacrifice needs to be remembered, but we got to learn. There's gotta, be, there's gotta be something here that we can learn. And, you know, we don't live in an age of learning you know, at all. Uh, I, I've said this, we live in an age of distraction. Yeah. And so I, uh, I'm going to get off on a tangent, but, <laughs> um, but you know, one of, one of the things that is sort of, there's a couple things that sort of, I don't want to hate to use the word intellectually, but intellectually guide me. And, 
you know, one of them was is a book by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock. And Future Shock was a phenomena that he as a Navy physician, he ended up naming it. He, but when he first saw it, he saw a lot of young men in World War II, particularly in the Navy, which he was a doctor in the Navy, mm-hmm. um, had a lot of illnesses that he considered probably stress-related or psychosomatic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he he really deep-dived into it and said, you know, the issue here is um, these young men from, you know, small towns, farms, you know, are now being bombarded, you know, learning their MOS, their jobs, foreign places, meeting people from different, you know, because at one time, it's still, you know, the difference between living in Pittsburgh, living in Harrisburg, yeah. living in, you know, I mean, why do we have different states? Well, because states had unique cultures. Yeah. Okay. And now they're all thrown together. So that melting pot is is boiling. You know, it's just not, it's in the melts. Yeah, yeah. And so he said, just like if you go to like France, you know, it's sort of like here, but not. And even if you know a smattering of French, the French don't want you to speak French unless you can speak it perfectly. They don't even want French Canadians speaking French. Oh, please do not. I will speak English. Or they'll act like they don't understand. Yeah. And so you get what they call culture shock. And it gets worse if you go to like Arabic countries or someplace where it's completely, you know, where the tone of voice, the hand gestures, everything, it's like you have no clue what's going on. You're right. Well, that's culture shock. Well, he came up with this idea called future shock, which is where you are a stranger in your own culture because things are changing so fast. Yeah. That if you can't keep up with it, and GIs go for whether a year in the army, yeah. yep. or they go for seven months in the Marines, and you come yep. back, and it's like it ain't the same world yeah. that you're coming back to, and you ain't the same person. And so now we got a, a real problem. So that whole idea of culture shock and future shock informs uh, uh, some of my thinking and what I do. And like I said, being growing up in the '60s. And seventies, and suddenly having to register for the the last year, they had the people that were born in fifty three. We were the last ones that registered for the draft. And the reality of getting drafted and going to war got pretty started getting pretty real. Um, and then seeing that all fade, you know. And there was a time, like for instance, in in you know Billy Joel's song, you know, "Good Night Saigon," Meh. where you know if you look back when he would do like a concert in Madison Square Garden in like the early 80s. And these, you know, 30-something Vietnam vets are up there singing, you know, and we all go down together. And I cannot say that without staring, tearing up and getting freaking goosebumps. Yeah. You know, my wife and I, if we're driving in the car and they that song comes on, we both start to bawl. Wow. You know, it's wow. Like, oh. Yeah, 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 right. You know. Yeah, it means something, yeah. But the public, we're just, yeah. we're just so insulated. There are politicians. Like people go, Second Amendment, why? Malicious. Because there was a time people were like very invested in their communities to protect it, to be ready to do that. You know, so for me, like the whole Second Amendment thing, it's it's it has a lot to do with the fact from the 30,000 foot view is like, A, you know, the government no longer trusts its citizens and the citizens don't trust their citizens. Right. So we got a much deeper problem because we're killing a lot more people with fentanyl on a daily basis, and we're not even talking about that. Right. So that goes back to the, not that I'm a conspiracy theorist, but you know it's, 
and so much is not being told or being told yeah. in a certain way to shape the narrative. But perhaps that's what happens in a modern society, you know. And, and there's I don't know, there's much much to do with that. No, yeah. So I just like yeah. I said, what little and, and I don't know where the phrase comes from. I didn't come up with it, but it's like, what little can I do in this? Yeah perhaps losing conversation, just like Brian and his friends. You know, are we ever here in little Carlisle with this little thing? Cause there's, there's, there's think tanks. Yep. Everywhere. Yep. In, that they're paying people big bucks to do this. But once again, it's like, what little can I do? Or what can we do to, to, to do these little poke in the, like, hello. Yeah. Hello. You know, so Euler, yeah, Euler. yeah, yeah, and, and well, it's interesting. Um, I don't know a better way of phrasing this. So I'm just going to put this out to you because I think you'll know where I'm coming from with this. Do you think when I'm looking around at a display like this and graphic pictures and all that, it's almost impossible to see it as anything but an anti-war cry? Am I wrong in thinking that? Well, you know, it's it, you know, I would say it might be a personal thing with you. Haven't since we've done so many exhibits so far all over the country, uh, the show has never been politicized or or, or looked upon as anti-war. Interesting. Now, um, you know, Johnny got his gun by Dalton Trumbo was right, a blatant right. an- anti-war yeah. book. Yeah, sure. Um, myself as a Marine, as, as as a warrior, and perhaps as a realist, I am not anti-war. I'm not pro-war, but war it's just an amoral enterprise. It, it has no morality. Like, it is what it is. We're not going to get rid of forest yeah. fires. We're not going to yeah. get rid of pain and childbirth. Yeah. And if you think you're going to get people, <laughs> right. I mean, and right. this is and a Unitarian Universalist was on my dog tag. But, <laughs> if, but anybody that thinks by working to get rid of war, you're going to get rid of war, I got news for you. Neville Chamberlain found that out real fast. Of course. Of course. Human beings are very complicated. So, do you think people would see it this way, though? That's what that's what I wonder. Because I'm I'm looking at this. I'm like you. I'm not anti-war. I just see war as amoral. It just it is what it is. It's a tool. It has a purpose. It can be good or can be bad. But what I but coming from the Northeast, maybe the world the the circles in which I travel. But I look and I go. People are going to look at this and go, and they're just going to see this and go. That's it. No war is worth it. And to me, I go. Uh, I, I, do, do you think that well, do you think that's we automatic? To, I would say that as, yeah. as the Joe Bonham project, we don't try to control that narrative. Interesting. One way or the other. Yeah. Um, it's just about to say, and, and to put in the, the homeless, um, is that there are people who are willing, um, and I think it was George, uh, it was uh, uh, Orwell who was paraphrased, you know, there are, you know, Tough men who are willing to do yeah, violence yeah. on your behalf. Yes, yes. And that violence also means to willing to be wounded and to uh, endure moral injury. You know, I don't think I did a great job of setting up. Let's talk about. Let's talk about. But, the, but so, in other words, it's just. Uh, go. I mean, we're, we're maybe we're talking across purposes, but um, it's not. We're not overtly anti-war, and that has not shown up in a lot of interviews. And articles have been written about us. It's oh, that's just, good. Yeah, it's just it really it, it resonates like these are the faces and the bodies of those who have gone off to war on our behalf. And if somebody would actually 
like really push that home in an interview. I right. said, well, in point of fact, I want to tell you that what you're looking at is the result, all the people in these pictures, of not so much enemy fire, but our rules of engagement. Uh, that's an interesting point. You know, that that's these, a these were all, these guys were all wounded because we are not allowed to fight wars the way we used to. So IEDs getting sniped at from uh, behind women and children where we cannot return fire. You know, what you're looking at is, is, you know, is the result of, which is what GIs are concerned with. It's like, uh, you know, okay, somebody else made the decision. I mean, I made the decision. We made the decision to join, knowing that you know sure. this, this is a sure. possibility. Yeah. But somebody else made the decision of how we're going to carry it out. That we're going to go. Yeah. Right. And right. once we're here, you know, one of the issues for a lot of GIs is like, okay, once we're here, let us fight the damn war. You know, everybody's like these, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks. Hundred percent. Yeah. You know? And so. Uh, you know, that is an also another, you know, issue, you know, that is that is embedded in this. I don't make it overt, but That's it's a there. worthwhile thing to say because what you talked about, the disassociation between the, the, the civ-mill divide, right. I feel like that's a worthwhile thing for people to understand because I feel like there would be so much knee-jerk response to, oh, this, it's terrible, awful, therefore war is wrong. And it's like a little bit more complicated than that. Well, I don't, other, but I don't see it. Once again, on. I don't, and and, you're, and I'm an old libtard. I mean, I used to think, I used to w- wish in, in the Marine Corps that we had a Green Party. Been there, done that. <laughs> um, subscribe to words words like perfection and unnatural. <laughs> like, perfection. Good luck with that. Unnatural. Okay, so we had a freaking asteroid hit the Yucatan 66 million years ago, and within six days, every freaking... Big critter was dead, and we're the result of all little critters that lived in the mud that survived. But that was pretty. That was that was natural. That was natural. Uh, but you know, uh, having coal-fired, you know, uh, power plants because we don't want to freeze to death in the mid- in the winter. That's unnatural. <laughs> okay, what human beings is unnatural? Even though we, you know we're the result of millions of years of evolution, yeah, yeah. but somehow. Here in the last 200 years, we became unnatural. <laughs> Despite the fact they were warming and cooling cycles that were pretty wild before anybody had internal combustion engines. Yeah. So yeah. You know, make up your freaking mind. This, yeah. is, this is more about politics than anything else. When the National Geographic has articles about child labor pulling rare earth chemicals out of uh, yeah. Republic of the Congo and the Chinese control all those contracts, it's like, I don't want to hear about how we're going to save the planet with EVs. Yep. Yep. I got an EV. true. Yeah. And I know how it gets charged. Yep. And it doesn't self-charge. I got news for you. The lithium battery comes from somewhere. It's not in charge. It's that power plant somewhere up in the hills above Levin, Pennsylvania that charged without that electricity, buddy. Yeah. So what am I ranting about? So, you know, probably in talking to you and with Brian and his association is, um, and this goes back to where I was going previously, is I say that we live in an age of distraction. There's a great book, like I mentioned, Alvin Toppler, mm-hmm. a guy named Neil Postman, a book called Assuming Ourselves to Death. It should be required reading. Postman believes, and he died before the internet. So he was just basically in the, in the early and mid-80s. He's okay. a professor in communications at Columbia that about in particular, cable television. 
Hmm. Okay. Getting really big. And his thesis was that Orwell was not right. Aldous Huxley was. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's Aldous right. Huxley was. That's right. Now, the first, when I went to Penn State. Wait, we should explain that because people might not get So Brave New World. Brave New World. But instead of instead of a top-down, hey, you will do this, like 1984, Aldous Huxley said, no, 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 they're lulling you into complacency, Absolutely. and you will willingly accept this Too brave new world. To Too much fun to have. So you don't need take to be forced to be, yeah, yeah. Big brother will take care of you. Yep. Have a nice day. Yep. You know? And you're happy for it, as opposed to happy being oppressed your, by it. Yeah, yeah. Your velvet prison that you're That's living. right, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so... 1971, I'm at Penn State. And my parents didn't want to pay for art school because artists starve. So I was a forestry major. Like, what did I know about forestry? But it's like, oh, that'd be cool. My girlfriend at the time wanted to be a, a midwife and we'll live out in the hem, whatever, and live up in a fire tower or whatever. And, you know, live on rice and beans and just live the good life. And, uh, so, uh, but back in that day you were entering freshmen, you, you couldn't pre-register classes. Okay. Believe me, I got a point to all this. So you go to this big building where you, and it was computer cards in, in shoe boxes. So you'd go up to all the different classes. And of course you sat down with your advisor and you had this like most perfect schedule. Like I don't have to go to class to like. Tuesday and Thursday till noon. Oh, this is great. Wow. Of course, as soon as you go in there, that's all shot to shit because all the upper classes have already pre-registered for all the cool classes. So I go in there and now it's desperation time. I got to get, you know, because I got to take certain courses and I have a certain number. Of yeah. Whatever. So, and the psychology department must have known this because Psych 101 could have 3,000 students in the largest auditorium, Schwab Auditorium on Penn State campus. Everybody go up to Penn State, one of those big boulevards going up to the old main building on one side, <laughs> Schwab Auditorium, <laughs> humongous. So of course, I end up taking Psych 101, which is like the wrong thing for a 17-year-old to take. I mean, you're already convinced you're smarter than your parents <laughs> and probably everybody else. And I was my high school class, you know, salutatorian and, you know, just thought I was, you know, so smart. Um, and now you can cycle it. It's not a good thing Irish and alcoholic. <laughs> so it's like if the class is like 7.30 and it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday with a Saturday lab because they're, you basically now they're going to use you as it's a four credit course as, as, a, as, a, as a lab mouse for the grad students. If you're in Psych 101 right, right. on Saturday mornings, you got to go in and participate and right, right. see if they can make you salivate or something. So I go in there, and this is my memory bubble. So I'm sitting there in this massive thing, and the professor comes out, and he's like your typical professor, blue jeans, turtleneck, tweed jacket with elbow patches. <laughs> and uh, he comes out, and he goes, and, he, and he, he knows his audience. It's like mostly freshmen, couldn't get anything else. Now you got to take Psych 101. This keeps the psych department alive. And so he goes, you know, now that you're at Penn State, you're going to be forced with four categories of drugs that will derail you. And I will say at this point, Penn State main campus, unless you're Chinese or a Mensa student, you're not getting the main campus. 
you're going to one of the branch campuses. Well, in 1971, they may have had two branch campuses, maybe. I never heard of any, but. Okay, gotcha. I'm, 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 you know, it didn't, I wasn't, my scores were not that high. Right. I still have bad dreams. It's nice for high school graduation. <laughs> you know, I, got my papers due in, in finals. I was not, I floated by on my good looks and genius. So, anyway, so he's up there and he says, All right, he goes, they all have to do with the central nervous system. Now, Chris, remember, this is 
has worked. I don't, I don't question it. I think atheists are, are like vegans. They're very boring, and they'll let you know that they're atheists or vegans. Only letting someone know that you're a Marine is interesting. <laughs> I don't want to know that you're a vegan or an atheist. You can just keep that to yourself. Is and where am I going with this? Is um, I just lost my train of thought. No, sorry, because you were going to say so. Besides all that, besides the so you're going to say some political. Oh, because now, but this is this is goes back to Aldous Huxley mm-hmm. and Big Brother. I said because I'm in the arts community, mm-hmm. and I won't name names. People who are in fact, I've, I, I have cousins that are rabid atheists. Mm-hmm. They're all Catholics from Boston. Some of them went to Harvard. I, I have friends who hate the Catholic Church who are atheists. I said, why? There is no organization on the planet Earth that produces more educated, high-quality atheists than the <laughs> Catholic Church. No organization. The, the American Atheist Association ain't doing... They're not doing... They're not converting anybody. The Catholic Church it's true. Yeah. is better than the Baptists, Presbyterians, anybody else. They're just they're producing <laughs> atheists. But having been very much a liberal, associated with liberals, voted liberal forever, is it is a religion where it's not God Almighty. It's Gov Almighty. Mm-hmm. And it has its own Nicene Creed, has its own statement of faith, has its own levels of, uh, of, of, of its priesthood, as much as any other religion. They have a higher power that they will more than want to tithe to. At least they want you to. Yeah, right. Um, and one of the greatest, latest uh, guy came up, coined a phrase, is luxury beliefs. You ever hear that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, luxury belief is like, you can believe in something and live in like, you know, Marin County, but it never affects you. You can go, oh, you know, defund the police, but, you know, you live in a private gated community with your own security. It's not, you know, it's like, it's like, hey, I'm for the latest thing. The latest distraction has told me to be for this. Because you're insulated. You're prophylactically insulated from the consequences. So in many respects, I mean, the Joe Bonham project is political in as much as it just wants people to focus on what is important and triage a list of priorities to punch through the white noise. Everything is, everything is political. I mean, sure. The word politics comes from a Greek word, just means affairs of the city. Right. Right. So yeah, yeah, here we are. We just, we live in a certain time where, you know, the world is in chaos and, we don't know what we're doing. Whatever your political leading is, it's off fungu, you know. And what the public wants, whether you're left, right, or center, term limits. Yeah, yeah. not going to happen. Let's let's talk about let's talk about the origins of the Joe Bonham project because sure. I'm I'm unclear. So this was it looks like almost everything I'm seeing here was like 2011, 2012, right? The oldest is 2014. So so what happened? What, what was the genesis of the project? Talk about that. Where did well, that come it, from? Well, when you had, um, t- you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, this is going to sound political, Obama was now president. Right. Obama campaigned on Afghanistan being the good war. Yes. People want to forget that. Yes. Iraq was the bad war. Afghanistan was the good war. So, big push. Like when I was in Afghanistan, 
uh, in 2005, there was one Marine battalion, one battalion holding down three provinces mm. out of Jalalabad. One Marine battalion. By 2010, 2011, right. it was massive. They were Camp Bastion, Camp yeah. Leatherneck. Yeah. They got, they're building five giant airfields flooded with people. Yeah. Okay, flooded with people. The number of wounded, catastrophically yeah. wounded, that were coming back was massive. And I was aware of it because I, I just, I got out first day of 2010. So even in 2008, 2009, I'm going to Walter Reed and Bethesda. They were separate at the time. And sketching, what it was is at, at Walter Reed, the Marines were finishing up um, their like occupational therapy mm. and, and getting medically discharged. At Bethesda, they were still in the shock trauma wards. Okay. Getting put Humpty Dumpty still getting put back together. So okay. I was very aware when I retired, I got contacted by a woman who was the curator of the uh, military and diplomatic collection of the uh, Smithsonian's Museum of American History. Okay. And she was interested in my art because they got all the World War I art. In fact, the Army would love to have it back. Right. They have it. Right. And they suddenly realized, like in 2011 or late 2010, oh, we don't have any art of the current war. Like you're our national museum yeah. and you have nothing. Yeah. And you suddenly went, uh-oh, we have nothing. So I told her, I said, uh, I, all of my stuff belongs in the Marine Corps. But I said, how about this? Because I'd already been thinking about it. What about if we started going in and documenting the wounded? And she says, that would be great. That would be awesome. Did you think of that because of what we're talking about, because of wanting to draw America's focus to something important? Or was there another reason why you wanted to focus on drawing the wounded then? Well, I think my, in this discussion, you've got me thinking it sort of evolved. But initially, I was like, okay, there's a lot of these guys, and they're not in the news. People may be vaguely aware of... Yeah, they're flying. They're flying him to Ramstein, and they're going to the hospitals. And you know, there's these flights with you know four or five guys on board with massive number of military doctors and corpsmen who are keeping them alive and getting them to Ramstein and then yeah. home and whatever. But generally, it was you know it was not in the news. Yeah, I think politically, they didn't want people to know how much was going on what a cluster it was because this was the good war and why aren't we winning? Right. Because these people are all running around with homemade AKs and flip-flops or pick-and-pay shoes and, you know, they're, none of them can really read or write. And uh, <clears throat> so, um, but it was somebody who was interested in art and so that sort of, okay, that's something I was thinking about because I already had started my master's program. So I was like, huh. And I was like, okay, well, they're interested and it's a venue. So um, I had, uh, hadn't met Victor yet, but Richard and I um, had been featured together in articles and we met. Right. And, and I actually, he hooked me up with uh, Canada's National Post really? newspaper yeah. to, to go over and continue something he had started called the Kandahar Journal. So I went over, and then I wrote a whole series of illustrated articles that 
Canada's National Post. So we had never physically met, but I said, hey, would you like to come down? And I was like, oh, yeah, mate, that'd be great. So I arranged for myself, Richard, and the then uh, artist on active duty, Chris Battles, Mm -hmm. to go to uh, Walter Reed. I mean, and and go up to, uh, actually to go to, uh, because they were now combined. Okay. To go up to uh, Bethesda. Walter Reed at Bethesda, where yeah. they, they got some long name for it. Right. So we met and got up zero dark thirty at the Richard State at my house and uh, started. We almost got almost got up there and got a phone call. We were canceled. WTF? What do we do now? Well, I knew a public affairs marine named uh, uh, Colonel Greenberg, Paul Greenberg. So I call Paul up. I go, what can we do? What can we do? You know, I got this guy came all the way down from Canada. We're going to sketch. And he goes, let me see what I can do. So he calls us back. He goes, are you willing to turn around on I-95 and go to Richmond to the VA hospital? Yeah, we can do that. So we turned around, went down 95, and went to the the VA uh, uh, hospital um, in Richmond. And we spent the day sketching. Three Marines, Tyler Huffman, Zach Stinson, and uh, Kyle Carpenter. Now, Kyle was the last one because the, the liaison said, hey, this kid Kyle, he's, he's in therapy, but he really wants to like you know meet you guys and be sketched. Can you hang around? And we're like, oh, yeah, we'll hang around. So we did him last. And so I had already written and illustrated um, a uh, series for the New York Times. A, a guy named Peter Catapano, who I think is still there, um, had a thing called Frontlines. So he had contacted me because he became aware of it. I had a blog that was like the number sixth mill blog. Um, yeah. And so um, that's a whole other story. So he contacts me. He says, hey, I really like your writing and stuff. Would you be interested in doing something for me? I was like, I checked with the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps was like, yeah, just you know, don't write anything you don't want Osama bin Laden, the commandant, or your mom to read. And you were no longer, you weren't in uniform, but were you still with the combat arts program now? Well, I, before with Peter when I was in uniform. Now I'm out, and he and I contacted him. I said, hey, I'm going to, okay. I got all these drawings and these kids. Um, would you like to do another thing? And he goes, oh, heck yeah. So I did three articles you know, on each of these, wow. these three different Marines, and it got real, a lot of attention. Um, and, uh, and, and I think Richard wrote, was it maybe the candidates for the national post or maybe it was with the, I don't know if he was, cause he went, then he went to the Washington post. Anyway, so we, we did these articles. And this had been like one of the first times people even knew about Kyle Carpenter, right? Oh yeah. Cause he hadn't gotten the medal. No, no, no. Yeah. When I sketched Kyle, he, he, he got hit in October and it's like January or wow. February. Wow. So he's, wow. you know. Yeah, and I didn't even know the whole story. He just said he got him and his buddy were up in a, <laughs> up in a, up, at, they were like on guard, obser- observing. Yeah, and they got attacked, and the grenade came into their position. Hadn't realized he had thrown himself on the grenade. You know. Wow. So, um, so there was a couple of things came together between the woman, the curator at the at the Smithsonian's American National yeah. Museum. Yeah. Um, and. My editor, Peter Catapano, said, yeah, yeah, do another series of pieces. 
Um, and so I, I, then I, another thing that happened very serendipitously is like, um, I went and, uh, uh, my master's program, the first, the second period uh, of residency was in New York city at the society illustrators. And one of the presenters was Victor and, um, the guy who was in charge of the program knew Victor wanted to meet me because wow. uh, because Victor had done art for the Air Force program and he was really interested in the Marines and stuff. Gotcha. So I met Victor gotcha. and Victor, best buddy, was eventually uh, Jeff Fisher, who was unfortunately deceased. And so now we had a, uh, uh, another group went, it was me, Victor, and Jeff Fisher. And then my buddy Rob Bates was still on active duty and he, uh, his battalion um, was sent, he, he was short, so he didn't go overseas. They're sending the wounded back. And so the battalion commander, uh, his, his wife, you know, the key wives program, yeah. is going to go up with some wives to visit the wounded at, um. at Walter Reed slash Bethesda. And Rob Bates had already been making, doing portraits of the dead. From the battalion, I think it was three five wow. who got wow. got mauled and sanguine. Yeah, and so I saw his artwork. I was like, "Wow, dude, why don't you do you know?" So he so he did artwork of a buddy of his. Wow. So next thing you know, then Victor goes, "Hey, I got other friends from the Society of Illustrators, you know, who who would be interested." Now Victor's son was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps Reserve. Oh, I didn't know had, that. Had done two tours. Really? So okay. he had gone through that and whatever. Jeff Fisher's son was a Navy corpsman who had been with the Marines. Gotcha. So they had had the visceral experience of worry. Right, 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 right. These others, no. Now, Joe Olney over here, he was a National Guardsman who did two tours. Um, and was he with the Society of Illustrators? No, no, no. He was a, I, I, was, I taught a course uh, at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University while I was yeah. still doing my master's. And he was a grad student, but he decided he, he wasn't a grad student in art. And he, he took my course. And he was very talented. Wow. And uh, so... It, Is he it, still an artist to this day? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So um, that was sort of how it all came together. It was an institution interested in some art. They liked the idea of the wounded, the wounded warriors. Yeah. Um, I wrote an article, a series of articles that I called Still in the Fight. Um, and... Um, and it went. It went to the Smithsonian. No, no. Well, it's oddly, it didn't. It didn't. Okay. Because almost immediately we started having requests to exhibit. So I said to the woman, oh, you know, she's like, hasn't been accession. You don't have to, you know, we have no paperwork, no agreement, whatever. So, um, wow. and then we just, you know, we, we exhibited in uh, Workhouse Art Gallery, uh, which is uh, in uh, 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 Prince William County. Oh, okay. Big arts place. Yeah. Uh, we were Pepco Edison Place Gallery right across from the National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery. Uh, oh, gosh. Out in Colorado at the uh, Medical College of the uh, University of Colorado, Greenville County Art Museum. Uh, is that more rewarding than having gone to the Smithsonian? I mean, what, what's the what's the trade-off? Well, if, well, if, if it had gone to the Smithsonian, it would have just died. Just end up in storage. Yeah. Somewhere. By the time it would have been exhibited, you know, who knows? 
where does all this stay? Do you have all this? Yeah, with I have you? a I have a storage facility. Wow, with all this. So got every everything was, you know, wrapped up and preserved and Jeez. whatever. So um yeah. And um, you hung all of this today? No, not today, last week. Oh, last week. Okay. And what's today? Wednesday. Wednesday. So yeah, I started last Wednesday. Delivered the artwork and just kind of sat along the walls and said, okay, what, how are we going to set this up? And then Thursday, Friday, started putting it up. And then uh, my wife and I came in on Monday and uh, everything was hung. And she helped me put up all the stickers and all the names and all the personal gotcha. statements and all that stuff. Wow. Uh, her, all her doing. That's awesome. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, so tonight it opens, right? Yeah, technically it's open now, but you know it's they got to get that door open because okay, otherwise they want them to come through here and it just doesn't draw people. In. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So of course. Tonight will be the big, you know. Gotcha. The actual official open. And how long does it hang for? How long does it stay? Till December thirteenth. Really? Yeah. That's a nice run. Well, yeah, we, you know that's kind of it's just it's normal, about a month. Yeah. Yeah, I've, that's I've had stuff longer, three, four, five months, but that's all right. I don't care. Yeah, I mean that's great. What do you What do you hope? What do you hope for? What's a, What's a, the outcome that you'd like to see from this? From this big more shows. Exhibit? There's going to be some people from the. We've, we've the show. The full show is hung um, at the Marine Corps Museum, but COVID shot it down. So that was hung and open basically the same. You know, Veterans Day in 2019, and by April 2020, they said we're going to be shut down if we don't know how long. Oh, so God. come up and get come down and get it. So I did. Um, then the show was slated after the Marine Corps to go to what's called the Mariners Museum in Rotterdam, the National Museum of the Royal Dutch Marines, because it was the 75th anniversary, the end of World War II, and the Royal Dutch Marines were kept alive by the U.S. Marines. And so wow. they wanted to make a connection between the Marine Corps. And so um, I had met their head curator at a conference that uh, Virginia Tech had down in uh, Roanoke, Virginia. Because I've done a lot of talks too with the art, I've taken a few pieces, but I've invited, been invited to go, like you know, the Boston Athenaeum. Oh yeah, a whole bunch of colleges. Cool. You know, Norman Rockwell Museum. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, some places is like, oh, you know, their their exhibition schedules like, you know, they're like working three, four, five, six years out. You know, so to get into, you know, gotcha. a museum is uh, is not always easy. So. Um, are you going to do talks here? Yeah, I'll probably do something. Brian's going to Brian's going to do some yeah, some, some talks so. for you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but um, what do you hope that people coming to this are going to walk out of? Do you want that? Do you want just to punch through the white noise? Yeah, just to be aware. Just to be aware. I mean, I'm not. So once, it, ag- once again, I don't want to be a propagandist. I don't want. No, no, I don't yeah. want to say this is yeah. what you need to think or believe. Sure. Sure. Or whatever. It's just like it's it's like. It's just people. It's awareness. We got to like. It's just. I, how would you say? Punch through the white noise. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Because that's where we're at. So really, the audience to come to see this really should not be veterans. It should be civilians. I mean, veterans can obviously, oh, but listen, but it's we like were out, when we were out in Aurora, Colorado, one of the sponsors was uh, uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars Post Number One, and one of their members was a, a VP at. Uh, uh, Southwest Airlines. So all our flights were comped by Southwest Airlines. Beautiful. Wow. What I'm leading to is we had 
Vietnam veterans from that came to the opening and stuff, and they couldn't stay. Yeah, I bet. They were like, oh, I bet go. they couldn't. I and bet these they guys couldn't. Their, you know, leather motorcycle jackets on, yeah. bad looking guys tatted up, and they were like, uh, Mike. Eh. Yeah, yeah. Like for them, it's not like we know. We don't. Right, right, right. We don't right, right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So it's, uh, you know, it's the public. And as you know, I mean, the public is the American public. I mean, you think people like the Kardashians became influencers. Even the word influencer, what the hell is that? Yeah. You know, an influence in World War II was Jimmy Stewart who gave up acting <laughs> and was a bombardier and risked his right. life and limb right. on multiple flights. That's influencing. Right. Okay. Kardashians, you know, in their in their uh, in their houses or their closets whining they don't have enough shoes. It's a lifestyle. It's people addicted to a lifestyle. Well it's, it's pure that's pure as I'm saying. That's yeah, like it's distraction, yeah. That's like heroin of distraction. It's interesting. Well, let me let me ask you if you've experienced this in your life because you've you've been. I don't know if you know this, how high profile you've been in the veteran arts community. Like that's how I got referred to you. Is they were like, "Oh, dude, if you like my stuff, check out Michael D. Fay." Like, I mean, but I mean, but I say that because, and maybe this is a social media thing and all that. But you know, as veterans, you know. People get out of the military, become veterans, start to become influencers in their own way. Maybe it's a Jocko type that starts a business and does all this. These are accomplished people and all that. But I know the hatred that they get for daring to poke their heads above the crowd. Well, I, and I have you experienced that where, oh where people God. are like in the Marine Corps? Really? Oh yeah. Because you were a combat artist or because you were a good combat artist? Because I was well, because here we have a war. Okay, that the culture is sitting out. All right. And I've never seen it, but friends of mine said, do not go see the movie The Hurt Locker. You will lose your effing mind. That it got an Academy Award is bizarre. I go, why? They go, why? There's a thing where the main character goes on a jog outside the wire by himself. Yeah, with his sidearm. He's an EOD guy. It's like... Go knocking yeah, well, doors EOD by himself. Are, yeah, are, go are knock himself. Sniping. Yeah, yeah. It's like, Get. there's no, there's nothing <laughs> real about you would... But this is what the American public thinks. This is what the culture has given us. The only movie I've seen, culturally, that even gets close, and it does a pretty good job, is the battle for L.A., and it's fighting aliens. But it's actually very real... The only thing real that's not that real is they're not cursing enough, and the staff sergeant looks old enough to be a sergeant major. But other than that, the tactics, what they're doing, yeah. Yeah. it's it was pretty. It was like okay, this is bizarre, and it's probably it's probably you know a, a metaphor for you know the aliens we were fighting over there, that right, like right, right, people right, people from another planet, right. Um, but I was in a position where. Unbeknownst to me, I was going to get a lot of attention, which there were people in the Marine Corps that loved. And then as often happens in the military, you go from having certain mentors and they either retire or move on and you get another tier of knuckleheads who don't get it and are only anticipating this attention is going to, something's going to go wrong, which never did, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so... um. And it all started my first trip. I'm over 
at Kandahar International Airport, January 2002, like January 6th, we got there. And it's the, it's like, it's the stone ages. It's like, yeah, right. It's, there's, it's crazy. So I'm there, my first real, okay, here I am, got a sketch. So I got a little tripod leather stool and I'm sitting out on the tarmac sketching. And this redheaded lieutenant who's a public affairs officer comes over and goes, um, he goes, Staff Sergeant, uh, will you be willing to talk to the press? Is that okay, sir? He's like, well, yeah. I mean, if you're cool with it. So over comes a, a Reuters photographer, Rob Martin, and Helen Nickemeyer from Associated Press. So I get all these photos taken of me and get interviewed. And next thing I know, it's in newspapers across the planet. Oh, yeah. Everybody yeah. picked up on yeah. it because it's something different. Because the news people, like, they, and he goes back to Aldous Huxley, they're looking for content yeah. that's going to grab viewers. And yeah. unbeknownst to me, little little Staff Sergeant Michael D. Fay, 49 years old, sitting out here <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my Desert Storm uh, uh, um, uh, chocolate chip camis, because it's such a hodgepodge of uniforms. Yeah. And I dug them out of storage. And I'm here, and they're like, woohoo. So it's like, but I, I had people, the, the gentleman who was my boss, a brigadier general retired, sends me an email. This is great. So glad you're getting attention. To another group of knuckleheads that I'm traveling with because I'm a single cat yeah. dog. So they put me in with another group who I get a message from them. Cease and desist. Who gave you permission? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they're like in Bahrain, Fifth Fleet, a couple thousand miles away. And they're like, you know, it's you're in the this newspaper and that newspaper, and you're in Danish newspapers, and you're like in the Beirut newspaper, and you're in the freaking wow, you know, wow, Jakarta. I mean, it's like everybody, you know, people's yeah. like, oh, pick up on this. Wow, and I'm like, what the hell? So then I come back and I start getting offers for shows. What kind of shows? Exhibits. So now I'm I have I'm have an exhibit. They had a big show before the Navy Yard closed down. Got a big show at the Navy Yard. Wow. And then um, uh, I uh, get a show in 2005 at the Farnsworth Museum and Wyeth Center in Rockland, Maine. This is like the largest collection of Wyeth family and, and also wow. uh, uh, Howard Pyle, the mentor of the whole. And this is like, you know, in, in the arts community, that gets you a lot of attention. I'm doing a lecture at the, at the Norman Rockwell Museum. And I got the, I, I started a blog only because, okay, I'm going overseas. I've already done two trips. I got artwork. And, you know, battalion COs and OPSOs want to know, like, okay, what is it you do? You're a combat artist. You're not a kung fu guy. I mean, you sketch and stuff. I go, that's what I do. It's like, oh. So I set up a blog on blogger.com with my artwork just to say, here, and, and I'm, I'm, I had a nephew who was a, a, just now, a, a, he was a brand new second lieutenant. He's the adjutant, and he's gone over to Iraq before me. And his wife goes, well, Joey, he's going to be really busy. And we set up a blog, so you can go there, and he's going to email me, and I'll put content. So I'm thinking a blog is like a highly evolved email. The only people that can go to your blog are those that have the address. <laughs> I don't realize this is now... Google internet search. Yeah, right, right. So I'm writing little stories about where I've been, the artwork, and now I'm getting 
messages from Moms of America. Because all these moms groups are trying to follow their sons. Like, what's going on? So I'm a new, new unusual news source. Right? And now, I'm, 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 the, the, the public affairs goes, oh, we got this Mike, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, I'm blank. Who's a Washington Post writer. Okay. And, uh, name will come to me. Okay. Yeah, would, would you take him around with you? Be an escort? Because I'm technically sort of camping out with right, public affairs. Right, right. I go, okay. So now he does a whole article about me in the Washington Post. And I get another article in the Wall Street Journal. And I get home and the BBC does a little documentary. So pretty soon I was like, I'm like, now I'm going to Quantico where I was stationed, the public affairs. I go, is this cool? Is this cool? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I could get into the minutiae of chains of command. No, that's true though. It's true. I can know where you're so, going. Yeah. So, so your chain of command hated it. Well, nobody could decide what my chain of command was. Uh, yeah. Right? Which I means want, everybody gets to weigh in right. now, right? And so for those listening, my initial chain of command had to do with the Marine Corps Historical Center at the Navy Yard. That command had one director and three subgroups, the museum, the archives, and the history division. Okay? The historians who would go out and deploy, all right? And it was a Brigadier General Simmons, and then his next person was a Colonel John Ripley, who was very famous among Marines because of his heroism. Um, he virtually stopped the entire North Vietnamese Army at a bridge in Dong Ha, Easter 1972. The only reason he didn't get a Medal of Honor and just the Navy Cross is because it was a major embarrassment for the Army Command. Yeah. And I won't get into that whole story, but wow. very well respected. So I had two mentors who got what I did, had no problem with the attention I was getting. These are the guys that got me promoted to warrant officer, wow. did a lot of things for me. When I came back in 2006, all that had changed because now it's like Cuba, the 99-year <laughs> lease that the Marine Corps History, Historical Center had with the Navy at the Navy Yard yeah. for the building yeah. was up, and the Navy wanted it back, and at the same time, the Marine Corps was opening its museum. All right, so now all of that goes down under Marine Corps University. So now you got a retired two-star general who's basically the president of Marine Corps University. Right. All the things underneath now became separate directorates. You had the archives had its own director. You had the history division its own director, and the museum had its own director. And unbeknownst to me, they rewrote the manual because now you got a new situation. So the, the manual on histories and museums has a little blurb on artists. The art program is administratively controlled by the history division, and operationally controlled by the museum. What that meant, I mean, that's as much as it wow. said, what that wow. meant, all right? And you're so just caught in the crossfire. you had a situation where the history division now had new, because of the reorganization, had a bunch of new billets. But they weren't funded yet, and they weren't filled. And they had an interim director who was a good friend of mine, Colonel Dick Camp, um, he, he wrote a book about his experience as a company officer at, at, at Quezon called Lima Six. And Dick Camp was also a big 
fan of, of what I did. Right. He had no problem with anything I was doing. And so Dick goes, I got seven positions that I have no civilians in yet, <laughs> but I got it. He knew the Marine Corps. If I, I have to fill them or they're going to go away. Yeah. Just yeah. by atrophy. Yeah. They might exist on paper, but if someone's not sitting in those desks. Yeah. So here's a situation. He fills it with Marine reservists. He, he, they initially were called the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> they were anything but. The Marine Corps Reserve is a weird thing. You can be like, join a Marine Corps Reserve unit and stay there for 20 years. You can go from Lance Corporal to Sergeant Major and stay in that reserve unit. Officers have to find a new reserve unit every three years. Um, Word gets out if you're a shitbird or somebody you just don't want because it's small. Marine Corps Reserve is small. And so we had seven reservists who, from colonel down to captain, that nobody wanted. So, so reserve officers are out there basically sending out resumes like, can I join your reserve unit? Can I join your reserve unit? And it's like, oh, man, I got to find a unit and get, so I get my good years. So now we got these people, and I had nothing, and I'm a warrant officer now, had nothing but problems. They were, like, anticipating all kinds of problems. Wow. So, like, oh, I, I could go on about it, but I could say this. It was so bad, my final fitness report was written by two officers I did not know. Wow. And it was a career ender. It was what was they it? call below average. Really? But I knew I was already going to pick up CWO2, so I didn't care. Yeah. I, I was a made man. But it was just, they had, like, they did this. They said, for me to pick up Chief Warrant Officer 2 from WO1, mm-hmm. I had to go to my MOS school. So they'd maybe a combat camera officer. So the monitors, the people that control promotions, they want to see, you get a little fitness report that says you went to this school. Right. So I put in the request through the admin, the history side, that's my admin control, to get permissive TAD to go to the MOS school, mm-hmm. which was at Fort Meade, Maryland. Okay. I'm living in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Fortunately, I had a girlfriend who was now living in Alexandria across the bridge. Okay. All right. So now the school's coming up. Do you think they put in the request? No. No. Not only did they put in the request, but they scheduled me for the rifle range. And this school is one week, combat camera officer's leadership course, once a year. Once a year. And I went to the female colonel, because I disenrolled myself from the, from the rifle range. And she goes, why did you do that, warrant officer? I go, ma'am, I'm a chief, I'm a warrant officer in the United States Marine Corps over 14 years. My TO weapon is the 9mm. I am not required ever again to go to the rifle range. Here's the Marine Corps order. And? End of story. What did so she say? I ended up taking leave to go to my school on my own dime, stayed at my, my then girlfriend, now wife's apartment in Alexandria. Wow. And went there on my own dime. And so, I had to pull a lot of strings and make a lot of phone calls to get a school seat. I bet you did. And did you, but is that why you got the below fitness? Because you disobey, you didn't go to the rifle range and you were Well, I, another thing was I, Quantico uh, Public Affairs approved 
um, a woman named Rita Mangianaro, BBC producer, did a did a documentary, a thirty minute documentary on me, and it's still the slideshow of my art is still. You can see it; it's still on the internet. Okay, and that was all approved Quantico Public Affairs, right? So is that admin or operational, yeah, yeah, whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. but this is what happened. So I'm. Uh, I, I was. I had permission from because uh, this the you know, all this stuff whining about it. Dick Camp, Colonel Camp, uh, because he did not have a PhD, he was doing a great administrative job. They hired another guy to be the director of the history division. Within 24 hours, Dick had just quit. They said, you can be the assistant. He was like, no way. So he went to work for the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation directly for the museum on their nonprofit side. Like within 24 hours, he was gone. And I had a new boss who uh, was, as Dick said, was a hail fellow well met. All right. So at that exact same time, all right, BBC does this thing and they put up the slideshow now two of the images on the slideshow one was of a Lance Corporal Nicholas G. Chacon Nicholas G. Chacon committed suicide one year after he came back from Afghanistan okay 2003 okay I did the drawing in 2002 he committed suicide in 2003 another image was of a uh, an amputee named Andrian Jones was artwork I had done at uh, Walter Reed. He was getting ready to be discharged. So I get a phone call because at this time, I was supposed to have a studio at Quantico in an old warehouse. But because the contract hadn't been fulfilled, we were not allowed to take possession of the studio space. So Dick Camp had given me permission to work out of my kitchen in my home in Fredericksburg. And... I would report in every day at 9 o'clock by phone to the museum. There was a major who was in charge of the detachment of Marines at the museum. Yeah. Operational control. Yeah. All right. So I get a call at 8 o'clock in the morning, and it's some captain from the history division say, you need to be here in uniform at 9 o'clock. Why? Just be here. So I put my uniform on, and I come up, and I go in. There's a conference room. Here's all this magnificent seven. Captain, a major, a couple of lieutenant colonels, and two colonels. They have me sit down, and they go, you will contact the producer from the BBC to take two of the images off of the website because they show the Marine Corps in a bad light. Wow. The suicide... And the suicide information is the official captioning information. The family wanted people to know what happened to Nicholas G. Chacon. Wow. And the other was the Marine, a watercolor of a Marine amputee. And I'm looking at him like, and I basically said to them, because you've gotten a sense of my personality. It's like, or what? I'm a warrant officer in the Marine Corps. Or what? Yeah. You're write me up? Are you going to charge me or something? Well, uh, but you just need to contact them. And I'm saying, do you realize that's even a bigger story? 
if I contact yeah. you and say, you who have nothing really to do with any of yeah, this, yeah, yeah. you have nothing else better to do because these are people just keeping seats warm. Yeah. So you're sitting around going, why does this warrant officer get the work out of his house? And, you know, and, and I already have the, the, the number six mill blog. I've, I was already in, approved, went to the first mill blog conference mm. at, at the, the Hilton in D.C., all this had none of this was under the table, right? So I leave. I'm like, I'm not gonna do this. Like, I don't know what you all are gonna do. Yeah. But you certainly don't want me to request mast, which is a, something you can do in the Marines to go to the next higher, like the general, and go, hey sir, what the hell's going yeah. on? So I uh I call up the then curator of the art collection. Okay. Because I am not the just like with combat camera. I am not the releasing authority for any imagery. The BBC got the image and the captioning material. From they didn't the request curator. it from you. They requested from the curator. From the curator. And I won't mention his name. He eventually became the assistant director of the museum. And he was a former combat artist. And I said, I'll use this first. I said, Charlie, this is what just happened. He goes, Oh, yeah, they called me. They wanted me to call the BBC and have them take off that information. And I told him, oh, I released it. That's the captaining information. So I said, they already called you. He goes, oh yeah. Now what did I learn? I learned he wasn't going to cover for me. Right? So having said all that, I was still very successful. But I did not, within the Marine Corps, I went from having people that cheered me on yeah. to people who had nothing else better to do. Did you leave bitter? Oh, absolutely. Listen, when I left, I told them, do not, I do, I'm not going to have a retirement ceremony. Do not give me an end of tour medal. Because this same group of people, now I'm really bellyaching, I was written up for a bronze star. And I have the emails from the colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Good Britain, who written me up. Yeah. And he says, you need to know you have no friends. Because he was a reservist, had got done with his tour as a, yeah. as a historian, yeah. went back to his civilian job. I think he was a postal inspector. He wasn't, no, he's an NCIS agent. He then went to the post office. Mm. So Craig goes, I'm going to send you some, forward you some emails because they're not going to do anything with your Bronze Star. Wow. So you need to know this is there or with your purple heart right up. They're not going to, they're just, here's the email. Were they, I know they were rejects and, and whatever people that other people didn't want. Were they artists by any, no, or no, historians no, no, no. or what they were, were they? Historians. These are just people that just needed. They were just literally warm bodies. Literally warm bodies. So they, they just resented the hell out of you, Right. So what about the positive side of having had that much press coverage? Did you see your name, whether it's in civilian circles, the arts world, just the combat art community? Did that skyrocket your profile in a positive way? That's oh yeah, I'm 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 just yeah. belly aching about a situation personally. No, yeah, where it was something I had to deal with. A hundred percent. You know, with, with with well, no good deed goes unpunished. With, that's right. right. Yeah. And so yeah. right uh, with people who. I mean, it's 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 not. It's just people got nothing else better to do. Yeah, you yeah. Know, they're sitting around going, eh, but, you know. It's it's like it's like what are we at middle school? Yeah. You know. Now I could see because even my replacement, the artist who I recruited, 
he said, after you left, people were talking about like, oh, Faye did this and Faye did that. And I go, he never did that. I'll give you an example. I got called up to be ABC's person of the week. Okay. Uh, it was supposed to be Cal Ripken. <laughs> the producer goes, we were going to have Cal Ripken, but because of my, I'm out, I don't know what, whether it was, whatever it was, but she calls, she says, we want you to be ABC's person of the week. We were already had a thing set up. We were going to go up to New Jersey to visit with a former Marine Corps artist named Charlie Waterhouse, who was ailing, old guy, World War II, excuse me, vet. And I said, you know what? It just so happens. Myself and two other, one in uniform, one retired combat artist, are going to visit this other guy yeah. in Tom's River, New Jersey. And for you guys coming out of New York, it's even closer. She goes, that is awesome. Right? So Chris goes, these people are talking about, oh, Faye, the Mike Faye Roadshow, self-aggrandizement. He goes, they don't realize that you, you know, you could have just been whatever. And it's like, you never did that. But it's just, once again, <laughs> you got to give people meaningful work because if you don't, their ability yeah. to distract yeah, yeah, themselves yeah. No. with pure nonsense. 100%. You know. What did this mean after, in the years since, that you completely got away from the Marine Corps? What, did the did the press continue to follow you? Oh, did yeah. you? I mean, it, so it's been a net positive, right? It launched oh, yes, you in I, so I many not, ways. I, 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 I'm eating some lovely cheese with my wine. Yeah, that's good. No, no, no. But listen, but but then what about the military fallout? I mean, how how has it been well, in the I, times you come back to the combat here's, arts here's community? Here's the positive side. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm at the museum one day, and this full bird colonel, who I knew as a lieutenant colonel, sees me. Um. And uh, he was the commanding officer named Bob Oldman of a battalion I was with for Operation Steel Curtain, which is what I wrote a series of articles about okay. for Peter Catapano at the New York Times. And he's there with his family. And he just got transferred. He picked up Colonel. And he's now at Quantico. And he's the security chief for the whole base. Okay. Okay. And he's there with his family. And he recognizes me. And he goes, Gunner Faye, hey, how you doing? It's like, good to see you. And he comes over and he goes... And some officers are amazing. See, there's always positive for every negative. And he goes, did you ever get your combat action ribbon? Now, Jenny's sitting over there. I don't know. There are certain things Marines it's a big deal. Want. Yeah, yeah. In the Army, they have it, your, your combat. Your cab, yeah. Badge. Or CIB, yeah. So I imagine if a Marine goes in the Army, he gets the CIB. Or, I don't know if they still No, work. he doesn't, which is really weird. I worked with a Marine, a former Marine infantryman. Still keep, yeah. None of his badges transfer over. Yeah. He, he had his, So he'd cheat and wear all of his Marine ribbons yeah. and then his Army ones, and it looked like a huge thing, but he had no badges, no tabs or anything like that. It was so weird. Yeah, I was like... Well, anyway, any rate, so yeah. Combat Action anyway. Ribbon is a personal award. It's a ribbon, Yeah. and somewhere in the, and it says, in lieu of... Uh, Medal. Like at one point they were going to make it a medal and they just, it stayed a ribbon. Okay. So I said, no, sir, I never did. He goes, did you ever get your purple heart? I go, no, sir, I never did. He goes, well, we'll take care of that. So he couldn't get me the purple heart only because we needed, I needed two witnesses. And, and one of the witnesses I, I actually have located, so I should put in for it. I got shrapnel in my arm from an IED blast. But he got me my car. And then he says, what are you doing for your retirement? I go, not a thing, just walking out the door. He goes, no, not happening. So my retirement ceremony was unbelievable. And it was the security battalion. 
handled all his sergeant major. He said, he said, you come over to my office, sit down. My sergeant major and my opso are going to plan your retirement. Wow. So this is a this is a battalion commander, was tough guy. When I showed up, he's like, "Who the f are you? And why are you going to eat my chow and fill up my shitter?" Yeah, yeah. Then he didn't yeah. want me to leave. Yeah. And we're still good friends. So he goes, "No, you're going to." Yeah. He goes, "No way. You're you're going to have a retirement." So I had a fantastic. He found my bronze star write up and made it a meritorious service medal. Even though everything is combat wow. related, meaning it should wow. have been a bronze star. Yeah, yeah. So I got my. Wow. So he made sure I. I well, that's that's nice. That's nice. There were so some. There's, there were people who absolutely got people yeah. who were not in this weird world of bureaucratic abstractions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which has a lot to do with this art here. It's like I have no time for bureaucratic abstractions. Yeah. Like I have no time for atheists. Sorry, any fourteen-year-old can invent atheism if it went away. Not hard to do. No intellectual challenge. You know, yeah, yeah you're not going to yeah. see some bearded guy reaching over to some young, handsome guy touching fingers. I, I get that. All right, and if that's why there's no God, congratulations. Congrats, right. you have done a right. super job. You know, <laughs> and so uh, it's just, it's uh, get away from this, the world of, yeah. of, of projections and abstractions and those that I served with, whether it was this Paul Greenberg, who I knew as a captain, was now a lieutenant colonel. I'm out. He made it happen. He's like, oh, yeah, what you do is important. I'll get you. I'm going to make some phone calls. Because he was working for, at that time, when I, back to the original doing the Wounded Warriors, he was working as a public affairs guy for the Wounded Warrior Regiment. Okay. Okay. And I knew the guy. I traveled with the, uh, uh, the Maxwell, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Maxwell, who phoned, founded the whole Wounded Warrior so okay. there were people that I served with, was in the goo with, who absolutely got what I did. And that resulted in a lot of good stuff. <laughs> that, that, that magnificent seven group of knuckleheads who I never yeah. worked with, worked a day with. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was, those were the people that were the, the little fly. In, 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 yeah, so, yeah. I get a little spun up talking about because it, it was like you know I get it I I, I can completely relate yep absolutely and some of them I sent emails after I got out I said if I ever write my memoir you need to get an attorney now because I will be naming names <laughs> no listen that's that's the kindest way to you can heard possibly from approach them no that's good let's talk about you now what are you working on right now what are you personally doing right now what am I personally doing right yeah. now yeah um, well this is uh, I'm writing a novel and how's that coming. Well, you've been working on this for a while. I've been working on this for a long time, and like a lot of things, it takes on a life of its own. Um, it, it's uh, it's the novel is called "The Boy Who Drew Soldiers." The title itself was inspired when I was a school teacher. Uh, of, of, uh, there was a thing called Rabbit Tales that PBS had done, and they did a, a, a animated version of a Japanese folk story called "The Boy Who Drew Cats." So these are these are heroes. So it's a heroes. It's a classic, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jordan, Journey. Jordan Peterson yeah. heroes tale. Yeah. Um, there there is autobiographical content, um, but it's it's centered around mainly the experiences of a young man in World War One, and 
there's a lot more to it. There's a backstory mm -hmm. and a front story. Okay. And there's all the different sort of characters and things that have to do with the hero's tale. What's the timeline? What are you looking at, do you think? Well, I, to get I, it out. I, I mean, I already, I, the first part's done. In fact, I wrote it to Victor. He was like, oh, I got goosebumps. I can see this should be a movie. You know, um, the, the first part of the, of, okay. of the stuff. So um, the, the, the pre-story, which has to do with, there's some new agey magical realism aspects okay. to it. Um, some of the stuff not only takes place in the trenches of World War One. some of it, there's a, 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 a pre-story that takes place on Ascension Island. <laughs> That's going to be a thing. Okay, uh, all right. There's well. a fictional geographical place that looks a lot like Wales called Gloamshire, a county uh, that, that uh, has its own particular characteristics. Um, there is a whole bunch of uh, historical characters that are woven into the story okay. um, that are, uh, are people that have influenced me. Okay. Um, in particular, I would say that in, in the county of Gloamshire, it's somewhat isolated by something called the Limnal River. Okay. And the Limnal River has something called a strid. And a strid... You know what that is? No. It's, there's one, in, I can't think of the name, but there's one famous one in England. What it is, it's, it's a sort of fast-looking stream that looks rather narrow that is very deep and has undercut the limestone. And so oh. there's one in England that's if you fall into it, plan on drowning. Wow. Because it will suck you down and throw you into wow. caverns. So it's, it's, a, it's a very hard... It, 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 Gloamshire has a bit of sanctuary to it. And okay. it's, it's hard to get to. And once you get there, it's very difficult to... To leave? Yeah. Well, not so much to leave, but to ingratiate yourself to the people who live there. Oh, okay. And it's because the Gloamshire men have particular qualities, and nobody's quite sure who they are and where they came from. So there's also a backstory dealing with the... Hmm. A, a, a Roman legion that has uh, disappeared. Interesting. So there's all kinds of these sort of magical aspects, um, but uh, you know, and, and and the the main character goes through good times and bad times. In that, uh, to give an example, he has what seems to be a very successful career during the war. Um, and then it sort of goes bad after he gets out, and he ends up um, I'm weaving in with. Uh, he ends up as a, as the in, in a brand new Commonwealth graveyard. He's the caretaker. He just wants to live with the dead of his of his unit. It was, oh, wow. it was a battle where he knows a lot wow. of them are buried. Um, yeah, I could, it's there's wow. there's a lot of to it. Wow. There's, I feel like a novel suits the way your mind works. It gives you a lot of canvas to work yeah, on. So I got, I have a lot of notes and a lot of stuff. And just yeah. one of my inspirations uh, philosophically is a French philosopher named Henry Louise Bergson. Okay. His, uh, his granddaughter was a famous uh, 1970s uh, actress and model. I can't, her last name was Bergson. Okay. Oh, Jane, Jane Bergson. No, not. No, Jane Birkin. Yeah, not Jane, Jane Birkin. Birkin okay. Sang, yeah, yeah, never mind. Sexy orgasm. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. No, um, I was going to be very excited if it was Jane Perkin, but okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she recently passed away. She did. She yeah, did yeah, just yeah, recently yeah. pass away. Yeah, she yeah. was. That's one of those. But um, the, 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 actually, the, the Burks and I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. She was the main actress in um, the movie that Kubrick did with um, Ryan O'Neill. She. Uh, um, uh, was a, it was a set back in the 1700s, um, early 1800s. It was a man's name. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. At any rate, um, okay. it'll, it'll come to me, but uh, she was the actress. Okay. That, uh, okay. Whatever. And very, but Bergson wrote, was a philosopher, and he, I got exposed to him in um, philosophy of aesthetics class in college. So a lot of this stuff goes back to weaving stuff from Jung. I got you. And got you. Okay. So Bergson wrote a, a, an essay called On Laughter. And there's a passage in it where he, and I'm going to sort of, this is sort of paraphrasing, where he muses about art and poetry. <clears throat> and he says, and I'm paraphrasing once again, he says, Ultimate reality for the artist and the poet is clear. For the common herd, it's opaque and hard to see. It's almost like there's a veil between most people and truth and beauty and reality. Hmm. Now, here's the interesting part. He says... What fairies wove that veil? Hmm. Did they do, do it to protect us or to harm us? That's interesting. That's interesting. So that really struck me because as an artist, that's interesting. Yeah, artists go crazy. Yeah, you know because you. Yeah. Are, sometimes reality is like too clear, and you're just like, I just want to work for the post office. Well, in a lot of ways, that's insanity, right? It's that you see too clearly. It's not right. that you and don't see clearly enough; it's that you see too clearly. You got to realize these. Yeah. A lot of these philosophers yeah. in the late 1800s prefigured psychology yeah sure 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 and so like henry tonks is a character um wrr rivers who was the psychologist the british very uh in in, in, uh, dealing with uh, especially british officers with shell shock okay he was the doctor who treated siegfried sassoon and wilfred owen really yeah Uh, wrr rivers and he was very early you know, these psychotherapists in addition yeah. to Freud. Um, but what I'm getting at is the main town or village in Gloamshire that you sort of get into this area with is called Fairy Vale. But obviously not spelled F-A-I-R-Y. It's F-E-R-R-Y-V-A-L-E. Mm. So part of the story is these dualities. Yeah, like, yeah, Are you yeah, going to yeah. see what's really going on or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that the special mm-hmm. quality of my main character is there's another there's a book I, I, I read a couple times called Trench Warfare. And really, I think it's a doctoral thesis because it's so well documented. But what the book is about is the live and let live phenomena in World War One, because it extended way beyond the Christmas truce. That was just the beginning. And so, eventually, the first phase of the war, units would actually overtly communicate 
like, hey, let's not fight. Let's meet in no man's land. Right, let's right, negotiate. Right, 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 right. Because most units on both sides, unless they were elite, like Prussian guards or the Welsh guards, they really didn't want to fight. Yeah. This is a cluster. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what? So uh, they would actually like have overt agreements. Like they would say, hey, you know, let's not whatever. That make that makes sense. How often are you writing this? Is this a daily thing? Yeah. Are you putting in hours a day? Well, I don't know about hours, but it's something that I'm always taking. You're always, are you doing art still? Are you still uh, painting, drawing? No. Landscapes is my thing. But still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that in fact, right now? I have a nocturne uh, sitting on my, my. Got you. Got so so the the rhythm for you. You're your op tempo every day is. You, yeah, you get up and you create. I, wish I was more disciplined. I don't want to make any claims to. Okay. To be, I, You're waiting on inspiration? No, I, 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 we have a house that's a mess. We had a major Christmas Eve, and it's still... It's still recovering. We finally got somebody to come in and do the floors. Oh, God. So yeah, it's still, yeah, yeah. We're, we finally finished down the basement, the sheetrocking. Oh, my God. So it's... Uh, and then you got to clean up. Non-stop. And, and move stuff back yeah, to where yeah, yeah. it was. And, got you. Got you. I don't want to get into... <laughs> no, that'll be a whole other thing. Marital relationships, but... Um, <laughs> um, well, no. That, you, yeah, yeah. One of the, the part of the heroic story of my main character is that because of his own art talent, is made a reconnaissance sniper. And he starts to pick up on these messages that the Germans are, he has this ability to perceive beyond the normal stuff. Especially in the second phase of World War I, when units had to communicate using violence. Not using, so they had to do it not covertly. So you had to have people that could pick up on, like, what are the Germans trying to say to us across from us? Right. And how do we communicate back? So I'll give you an example. (coughs) The Germans would figure out, oh, the English have a latrine they're not using anymore. They pretty much, yeah. And they would shell the latrine, the trench mortars. So the British are like, oh, oh, all right. Is they do by accident, whatever, which means there's somebody on the other side. And there's eventually a, a scene where the, the, my character and a German soldier sort of become in cahoots. Right, right. Like, hey, we need to help our, nobody's going to win this freaking war. We need to help our guys stay alive. And so now, you know, my character is one that says, okay, I've located where, you know, the Germans have a trash pit or something. Yeah. And we'll just... And so they would, you, if the Germans would send six rounds at like 1600, the next day the Brits would send six rounds right, right at 1600 into a place they knew yeah, nobody was. They wouldn't be. That, that was the Afghans and the Taliban. The ANP would do that with the Taliban. Yeah, to tell them when they were low on ammunition or when, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's an interesting freaking sideline with it. Which is I don't, the whole concept of communicating with, with violence. violence. Yeah. Talking yeah. Back to my interest yes. in the whole Jungian thing. And so, and, and part of it is this fairy veil. In other words, a lot of units that really just realize we're not going to, this is a stalemate. Not the really hardcore units would try to create this veil between them and what they call the red tabs. When the, when the war got industrialized, to make the people in the back, they're doing planning, that they're actually fighting, conducting yeah, raids. Yeah, 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 yeah. It got yeah. to the point where British and Germans were exchanging bodies. Wow, wow. You know? Just to There's say, hey, we, we went on a raid last night. 
So the Germans say, here, we know you're going to give Franz a good burial. Send us information wow. where you buried him so we let his mother know, and vice versa. They started playing yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's, it's, wow, that's trippy. My character being, which, which is another book I have about a, a private Len Smith was a, in, a, in a territorial of the 7th unit okay. called the Shiny 7, who was this kind of kid who was sketching you know, the Germans and then realizing like, okay, we got a situation here that's evolving. Yeah. You know, let the Welsh guards, you know, have bragging rights. That's a lot of threads. That's interesting, interesting stuff. I don't want you to talk about it too much. I want you to freaking write it. I want to read that. That's seriously, that's an interesting well, I'll send story. You the first part. I would love to read the first, first part. part. I would love to read it. Dude, this has been, um, we're two hours. I'm going to cut us oh, off. Yeah. Dude, um, Fucking awesome, man! It's always good to see you. But the, but this is this is incredible. It's incredible to talk about the 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 motives, the aspirations behind all the work. Um, do you want people to follow you? Tell people where to where, how how do they keep in touch with what you're up to? How are they supposed to find you? Well, I mean, do you I, care? In fact, I got to get my wife. She, she set up a blog. I mean, a, good. a, a website. Excuse me, called and it's michaeldefay.com. Beautiful. Right now, about time. We're good. Pay again to have it. Oh, you got to get it up and running again. Get it up and running okay. again. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, but, you know, that's the main thing. It's just, Good. you know, I mean. What about the Joe Bonham Project? Can people reach you, find out about it? Oh, or, yeah. Or how do they reach you about the Joe Bonham Project if they want to exhibit it? Well, they could just do it through the website. It's got my information. Joe Bonham. What, what's the website? No, no, just Michael D. Fay. Oh, Michael D. Fay. Okay. But you got to get the website up then. Yeah. You, you yeah. just got to get it renewed. Uh, well, yeah. It's just like, oh, okay. oh I got, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty good one. So it's, uh, um, yeah. All right. I mean, or, I mean, my blog is called Fire and Ice. Okay. What is it? What was that? Fire and Ice dot what? Uh, What's well, the it's actually mdfay1.blogger.com. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay. It's one of those. Okay. But if people just put it, it people put in my name, make sure you put in the D because there's three other famous Fays. There's Mike Fay, who's a National Geographic explorer. Okay. There's Sir Michael Fay, who won the America's Cup. He's a New Zealander. Okay. Sailor. And then there's Mike Fay, who got spanked in Singapore. What? Back in nineteen. What would be best if you, is if you just pretended to be all of them, and you're like, I'm just the complete true. Renaissance man. You can just run the table of it. All right, dude. It's great to see you as always. Thank Very you. Cool. All right. That was Mike Fay's second profile in Havoc. Um, such a great time talking with Mike, and it really couldn't have been a better setting. I mean, you're seeing him in his element in a beautiful town. Um, again, Joe Bonham Project is running until December 13th there. Go and check it out. Do yourselves that favor. It is, um, it is. It's a stiff shot of Smirnoff. It is a stiff drink uh, to see that subject matter. But you are seeing it excruciatingly well done. And then you can go, there's like an amazing restaurant, like a block from the exhibit that I ate at. Can't remember the name of it right now, but the the town is incredible. You'll be able to get good food. You see great things. They've got a marquee in town. Like it's, it's a town to spend some time in. Um, and if the Joe Bonham project is what gets you there, <clears throat> it is well worth your time to do it. Okay. On that note, um, we start off this episode by thanking Second Mission Foundation. I need to thank this episode's other sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater. As you all know, Veterans Repertory Theater is a platform 
for veterans, current and former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD, contractors and employees, and immediate family members to create compelling live theater and events. Everything we do at VetRep is predicated on live performance art. So if you're interested in learning more, go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org, VetRep.org. While you're there, probably the best thing to do is scroll partway down the homepage, and you'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, which doubles as our mailing list. So when you subscribe, in your email inbox every day, you will receive a little bit of veteran writing, fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction that's been curated by us. And then beneath that, you'll see a whole bunch of shameless plugs for stuff that we have going on that week, day, month, whatever. So go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, and check it all out. Okay, I need to thank uh, this episode's producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, our thanks again to Mike Fay, and we will see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. 